Hello, Central Coast. Welcome to Solutions News. I'm your host, Ronaldo Brutico, and today, well, we have a really special show for you that will introduce you to the lifelong work of our special guest, Dr. Ann Eisler, who has made her career objective through her many groundbreaking, best-selling books that she wrote to explore what she calls the partnership model as a preferable social model to the domination system, which we so often have succumbed to in human history. We're fundamentally exploring how human societies can be categorized along a continuum of how strongly it supports general human growth and development, so that's the partnership model, versus how strongly it supports the rise of a small class of people on the backs of the rest, that's the domination system. Let me explain why this is such a crucial topic right now. The latest Social Progress Index, released by a group of economists published under the title socialprogress.org, just last Thursday had some shocking news for us here in the United States, as was pointed out by Nicholas Kristof in a special New York Times editorial. Out of the 163 nations ranked on this index, the U.S. ranks 28th, a drop of nearly 10 places since the index began tracking in 2011. The ranking tracks 50 measures of well-being, including nutrition, safety, health, education, freedom, and the environment. And while the U.S. has tremendous wealth, power, and influence as a country, it turns out we are failing most of our citizens along many of these categories, especially in comparison to most of the rest of the world. Out of all 163 countries, only three have shown a decline in the quality of life for their citizens over the last decade. Those three are the United States, Hungary, and Brazil. We suspect the same is true of Russia, but we don't have adequate data. I personally find it fascinating that these three countries are all three currently in the grips of increasingly authoritarian impulses, just like Russia. As our guest, Dr. Eisler, shares with us, these nations are all sliding back towards an emphasis on domination and submission, hierarchy and division in their governments, and by reflection in their cultures at large. In our conversation with her, we will be digging into this dysfunctional situation and also ask her the critical question, how do we push the pendulum back in the other direction? How do we move back up the index and build a more nurturing economy for ourselves and our children? But first, Christy, let's hear today's announcements. Thank you so much, Ronaldo, and thank you everyone for listening. just want to remind our audience again that this program is a production of the World Business Academy, a nonprofit think tank and action incubator focused on the role business can and should play in solving humanity's largest challenges. And I have two upcoming events to mention for our Santa Barbara listeners. First, we are again joining the Santa Barbara Permaculture Network and a host of other earth-loving organizations to bring you a drive-in community event on September 21st at the West Wind Drive-In in Goleta. Please join us for a special presentation of the award-winning film, Kiss the Ground, a documentary feature that explores the idea that by regenerating the health of the world's soils, we can completely and rapidly stabilize Earth's climate, restore lost ecosystems, and create abundant food supplies. And second, the Santa Barbara United Nations Association is presenting its annual Peace Prize on September 24th at 7 p.m. This year's theme is Celebrating Santa Barbara Stars Changing the World, and it features a special keynote speech by Ambassador Anwarul Chowdhury, former UN Ambassador from Bangladesh former United Nations Undersecretary and founder of the UN Culture of Peace Organization. This year's nominations include Barbara Tellison of the Unity Shop, Thomas Teague of Direct Relief International, and David Krieger of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. 
To reserve your ticket for Santa Barbara 24th, visit unasb.org slash peaceprize. If you have any follow-up questions or comments based on today's show, please email us at solutions at worldbusiness.org or send us a note on the website, solutionsnews.org. All right, Ronaldo. So I guess we are changing our format today to provide more time for our provocative interview. That's right. Uh, let me share with you a bit about our very special guest, Dr. Rianne Eisler, a Holocaust escapee from Austria during World War II, who is both the Juris Doctorate and a PhD. And amongst all her many accolades is a good friend for many years, I'm proud to say, and has been a fellow of the World Business Academy for almost three decades. Rianne is an innovative social system scientist, cultural historian, and researcher who, through her many books and speaking presentations, has transformed the lives of people worldwide. Her newest book, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, was recently published by Oxford University and shows how to construct a more equitable, sustainable, and most importantly, less violent world based on partnership rather than domination. Dr. Eisler serves actively as the president of the Center for Partnership Studies, which is dedicated to research and education, and as editor-in-chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies, which is an online peer-reviewed journal at the University of Minnesota that was inspired by her work. She gives keynote addresses at conferences nationally and internationally, has addressed the United Nations General Assembly, the U.S. Department of State, and congressional briefings, and has spoken at corporations and universities worldwide on applications of the partnership model. Brianne, Thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Renato. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, before we started talking today, you had mentioned how uh, I got started with you know, my worldview and what, what caused me to want to see a different model in business that was more conscious and more aligned with the love ethic than it was the domination ethic. And uh, it's been a long journey. But what I really would like to do is to have them hear more about you and, and have you explain some of the real details of what what do you mean when you talk about the domination system? What do you mean when you talk about the partnership system? Explain to us in your worldview how these two stack up as you see them with all these years of research. Well, I'll start with the first part of your question, which is what led me to this research now for, oh, uh, many decades and many books the first one was The Chalice and the Blade, and my most recent one is Nurturing Our Humanity, uh, which was just published with Oxford University Press. The impetus for all of this... Wait, wait, can I just make a commercial here? Rian, uh, that book, which you're going to want to get when you hear this interview, uh, is available through bookshop.org. And it's also available through Amazon. And we're going to be talking to Chaucer's here in town to see if they're going to be carrying it as well. So feel free to call Chaucer's and ask for a copy of the book. That's called Nurturing Our Humanity. I'm sorry, Rianne, go ahead. Oh, well, I have a lot of passion for this work. And that passion is rooted in my childhood. Because in terms of the conceptual framework and the new worldview that I've introduced in my work, the partnership domination scale, I was born into a time of massive regression to the domination side of that scale, the rise to power of the Nazis, first in Germany and then in my native Austria. And really, my parents and I escaped by just a hair's breadth. And I grew up in the industrial slums of Havana. We were very fortunate that we were able to escape alive 
but it was also traumatic for me as a very little girl to really suddenly find myself surrounded by poverty and suffering poverty. And these experiences led me to questions that really my life is dedicated to answering. Does it have to be this way? Do we have to have so much suffering, so much injustice, so much um, misery and violence, or is there an alternative? And my work really shows that there is an alternative. But in order to see it, we really have to leave behind our comfort zones and shift our thinking. Because as Einstein said, we cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. I, I, I just, I'm fascinated because you're talking about a period of time, which you traced back to the Nazis uh, initially in Germany and native Austria. And thank God you did escape because you've been such a planetary treasure ever since with your work. And that takes me to the second part of your question, Rinaldo. Uh, to make a long story short, it became very obvious I mean, obviously, these questions arose in my childhood. I didn't set out to systematically answer them until many years later. I was really very fortunate in my background because in addition to my background in sociology, anthropology, and system science, I worked for an offshoot of the Rand Corporation at a time when systems thinking, nobody knew what in the world it meant. But what it meant for me was that it became very, very obvious that we cannot answer the question of my childhood of what is a better alternative uh, through the lenses of conventional categories like right-left, capitalist, socialist, religious, secular, northern, southern, etc. Because for one thing, there have been miserable, repressive, violent regimes in all these categories. But for another, if you really think about it, all these categories are not systemic. They leave out no less than the majority of humanity or at best marginalize us. And what do I mean? They marginalize or leave out women and children. So once you incorporate into your research, into your thinking, the majority of humanity, a whole series of patterns evolve. And you begin to see the connection, a connection that I explore in great depths based on neuroscience, actually, in nurturing our humanity between what children first experience and observe in their very early years when we know from neuroscience nothing less than how our brains are structured, develop, and our politics and our economics. And I'll stop there and let you uh, continue. Well, I'm I'm wondering, uh, when you see the time we live in, are you concerned that we're reverting back to something more like a domination system than maybe we were on under, let's say, without getting political, but just even under the last president of the United States, maybe Obama, where I think there was a much more of a partnership orientation. Am I stretching to think that maybe you're, echoing here or is there am i missing it no you're quite right if you really look at modern history not in terms of right left religious secular and capitalist socialist and so on what you see 
is precisely that we're in a period of massive regression to the domination side of the scale. And not only in the United States with Trump, but in fundamentalism, which I call domination fundamentalism, uh, whether it was Hitler's Nazi Germany, Khomeini's Iran, the so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance here, or so-called trickle-down economics, what we're talking about is a system of top-down control in both the family and the state or tribe. The second part of the configuration, and we have to pay attention to how a society constructs gender roles and relations, because our economic system has a gendered system of values in which anything that in domination systems is stereotypically associated with men and masculinity is considered more valuable than anything considered, quote, soft or feminine. I'm going to just uh, take a break here for a second, Rian, and we'll be right back after these commercial announcements. Have you ever heard of garlic gold? If not, wow, are you in for a treat? As your neighbors can all tell you, it's fabulous. 100% extra virgin olive oil and organic garlic. That's all. Free of salt, sugar, and carbohydrates, this is a way to spark the dullest of steamed vegetables into a culinary explosion. Also great for chicken, lamb, beef, and fish. If you like garlic, you'll love garlic gold. Garlic gold is also available at Whole Foods, Gelson's Market, Sprouts, Erewhon, Natural natural food stores, and other fine retailers, as well as the GarlicGold.com website. Enjoy. Welcome back, Central Coast. This is the Solutions News with your host, Ronaldo Brutico, on 1290 KZSB Santa Barbara at Rianne Eisler. Rianne, before we were talking, and we want to get to the explanation of the partnership model in juxtaposition, which is your point, Christy, to the denomination model. Well, we will, persistence is my middle name. <laughs> well, that's why I kept coming back to, because to me, a lot of what we do, of course, and, and that we don't evaluate nurturing as having any value. I mean, literally to devalue it uh, is insane. I mean, it's like, of course, the most important thing you ask any man, even no matter how jingoistic he is, do you want your kids taken care of? Even in the old model, the answer was yes. And, and so the, obviously value that someone nurtured our children, but we, we put no value on it, which then makes the politics of that totally intolerable to me, it seems, anyway. Well, and that's why we have to go deeper, Rinaldo. Yeah. Because to just say, let's be nurturing without understanding how entangled that is well, with the lower status of women yeah. and the gender system well, of values. Anything that in domination systems is stereotypically associated with men and masculinity is considered more valuable than anything considered, quote, soft or feminine. And this really has nothing to do with women and men, has a lot to do with gender stereotypes, rigid stereotypes, so that somehow there's always enough money for, say, prisons. You know, that's really, if you think about it in terms of this new way of looking at the world is the old domination masculine stereotype of the punitive head of household, the male head of household, right? He's going to punish you. Uh, We always have enough money for weapons and wars. Guess what? That's the hero as warrior, as killer. But somehow we don't have enough money for health care, for child care, for 
really taking care of people and the planet, which really takes me to the third part of the configuration. To maintain top-down rankings, you have to have uh, built into the system abuse and violence. And we certainly see that, don't we, today. Uh, with Black Lives Matter, for example. We've had that. We've had a system, a caste system, basically. But you know what? This in-group versus out-group thinking is not just racism or sexism. It can be Shia versus Sunni or Sunni versus Shia. And not coincidentally, as I was getting to, whether it was for Hitler in Germany, Stalin in the former Soviet Union, so-called religious fundamentalism, a top priority is always either maintaining or returning to what people like from, from, you know, pushing us back, like to call a traditional family, which is code for an authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, highly punitive family. Why? Because they recognize in their gut that this is not just a women's and children's issue. This is a central social and economic human. issue. It's a human issue. And, and I'm just curious, the people will use words like the patriarchy. Would that be a fair summary of what you're trying to describe with this top-down model, or am I missing something there, and should we add more to it? I think we need to add to it. I have deliberately not used patriarchy and matriarchy because semantically they're two sides of the same domination coin, either father's rule or mother's rule. And the real alternative is a partnership system based on mutual respect, mutual accountability, mutual benefit, in which there are also hierarchies. I really want to emphasize that. But instead of these hierarchies of domination, where you know you either obey or else there are dire consequences, whether it's in the family or in a rigid domination system, it can be death, you know? I mean, like not so long ago in the European Middle Ages, if you even thought of talking about what we're talking about today, we'd both be burned at the stake, okay? Yeah. And what I like about this conversation is, familiar as I am in that, those Charles the Blade books, it, it, it was a, your first conversation, and you've had so many good books. For people who don't know Rianne's work, she's got one called Sacred Pleasure I recommend highly. The Real Wealth of Nations, which we talked a little bit about last week and which I hope we have time to get into. The Power of Partnership. Tomorrow's Children. These are all really great books. But the first one I saw across my radar was Chalice and the Blade. And it was about a different way to view what some would today would call the conflict of the sexes, but which I think you are saying is a pattern we got into where that hierarchy doesn't necessarily have to be male in the sense of physical male, as much as it is energetically that type of domination and control of one below another that you're referring to. And that's where you are with the book we are talking about today, Nurturing Our Humanity, is how to get out of that, that cycle we've been in for, I guess, millennia. Well, and it's very important for us to realize, as is documented in The Chalice and the Blade, as is again documented in detail in Nurturing Our Humanity, that what I call a domination system uh, where difference, children learn that beginning with the difference between the female and male form, they learn that 
that has to be equated with either superiority or inferiority, dominating or being dominated, being served or serving. So then it can be generalized and is generalized to every difference, be it racial, be it religious. As I said, it can be Shia versus Sunni. Not coincidentally, this is in societies of rigid domination families. Uh, I just I think what you're talking about in terms of needing a new language and needing to change the the models and is it reminds me of George Lakoff's work and uh, the metaphors we live by and how the model of that the hierarchical family with father of, as king compared to a more nurturing family where the each parent is more the egalitarian family model and how that gets then broadcast into your your whole understanding and how you under, see the entire world is that. Are you familiar with George Lakoff's work? Of and, course I am. Yeah. And yes, there are very strong similarities, but there are also differences because George does not really focus as much as I do on how the society, how the culture or subculture construct gender roles and relations. And that is not a, quote, women's issue. That is a central social and economic and business issue. Mm -hmm. Because of what I said, we have a hidden system of gendered valuations. So for example, GDP, I mean, which is a mess, includes activities that actually harm and take life, like selling cigarettes and the resulting medical costs and funeral costs, but fails to include the economic value of the work of caring for people starting in early childhood and caring for our natural environment. And both Smith and Marx, both capitalist and socialist theory, have perpetuated this relegation of the work of caring for nature. For both Marx and Smith, nature was there to be exploited, period. As for the, quote, women's work, of caring for people in households, which GDP simply ignores, but studies show that if it were counted, it would be 50%, up to 50% of the reported GDP, which is huge. But I mean, even if it were less than that, it is the work that is the most needed, and especially, and this takes me directly to nurturing our humanity and the real wealth of nations, because especially in our post-industrial knowledge service age, whether we have that high quality human capital of resilient, flexible people who can work in teams, et cetera, et cetera, we know from neuroscience largely hinges on the quality of care, that is correct, of early, early care, that children receive because up to 80% of our brain structure develops in the first three years. And business must take that into account today and not only change its policies and practices, but really push governments, which is a trend happening in some nations today, of course, but we can get back to, but not in this period of regression to the domination side. We have to learn to connect the dots. And this really takes me to uh, the idea of what kind of economic system can we create? And, and we have an opportunity now during this COVID-19 pandemic 
not to return to the normal. What kind of normal was it when even in the wealthy United States, one fourth of all children lived in poverty? This, this makes no sense. Yeah, and we have, to cut, we have to break in a second for some commercials, but I just want to highlight for people, if, if they haven't heard and aren't aware of The Real Wealth of Nations, it's a great book. It basically sets forth six foundations for a caring economic system. And if we ever could use a caring economic system, this is the time, and we are the people, and now is what we should do it. So with that, I'm going to just take a break here for a second, Rian, and we'll be right back after these commercial announcements. Imagine the hundreds of messages you hear every day subtly changing the way you think about the world. If these messages are negative or divisive, your outlook can become increasingly negative. Well, we've got an antidote. It's called Optimist Daily. It's a free service. Its mission is to find and send you positive solutions-oriented news stories, real stories, every morning in less than two minutes that will focus you on a positive worldview. Sign up for free at OptimistDaily.com. You'll be amazed how much more light will shine into your world. Central Coast. You're listening to Solutions News. This is your host, Ronaldo Brutico, on KZSB AM 1290, having the time of my life, enjoying myself immensely, talking to a friend of many years and a fellow of the World Business Academy, Rianne Eisler. Rianne, before we were talking, I just have to tell people that we are going to rebroadcast this program again tonight at 11, Saturday night at 5, and Sunday morning at 9 a.m., and we will have a podcast available for those of you overseas by Monday. So with that, you were talking a little bit, we're just getting started with economics. We touched on that great book of yours, The Real Wealth of Nations, and you were about to explain some things about economics. Please pick up there. Well, the point that I think has been lost in the conversation, in the argument between capitalism and socialism, is that economic systems don't just kind of poof out of thin air. They are embedded in the larger culture from the family to education, religion, politics, economics, and they're very different depending on the degree of orientation to either end of the partnership domination scale. Now, for example, if you take so-called trickle-down economics. Uh, we hate that here. We're, we're trickle-up people, but go ahead. <laughs> but, but the point of it is that this is nothing new. It's a form of domination economics. It simply is a repeat of feudal thinking, where those at the bottom are supposed to content themselves with the scraps falling from the opulent tables of those on top. It's really obscene, frankly. Rian, I just for our listeners, you know, as bad as we feel about that in this country, where the rich have gotten richer, particularly since 1970, the middle class has gotten hollowed out and the poor have just been just abandoned, it happens in communist countries. The oligarchs in Russia represent the same 1% or 2% that we have here that control their society and continue to benefit. So I just want to make the point that you're making, I think, is that it's not inherent in whether you're in Russia, the United States, Germany, or Spain. The economics is, flows from the cultural phenomenon that gives rise to that economy. Is that your point? Absolutely. And beyond that, if we really think about it, both capitalist and socialist theory not only came out of early industrial times, very 1700s, 1800s, but of times that oriented more to the domination side of the partnership domination scale. So not surprisingly, they perpetuated many of 
much of the thinking of domination cultures. Now, we today have a chance to change that, but we have to stop arguing capitalism versus socialism and simply think of a different system that incorporates the more caring elements, the more mutuality-oriented elements of both capitalism and of government policy, which is how socialism is now being used erroneously, I think, because socialism means something else. But yes. in any event, and move forward. Yeah, in fact, let's just touch on that. In, in Northern Europe, which is so successful, to call them socialist is to miss the point of how their economics actually functions. It's, they tend to be more nurturing societies, and therefore they have a more nurturing economy. And that Precisely. doesn't mean socialist. Precisely. Yeah. And you've put your finger on it. They sometimes call themselves caring societies, not socialists. They have a thriving market economy, for goodness sakes. To call them socialism is stupid, frankly. But it's convenient. You know, it's a big bugaboo. But let's get out of that and move towards a caring economics of partnerism, where the primary goal is what economics should have as its primary goal, which is caring for people starting at birth so that we really develop our human capacities and our brains so that we don't vote for strong men, quote unquote, strong men, leaders, uh, which is what happens and which is documented, by the way, in nurturing our humanity. And also so that we pay attention to caring for what we need which is our natural life support system, without which we don't exist. I'm afraid to ask this question because I hate to hear what the answer might be, but I got to ask it. Is there a place in history where a society was able to function with the partnership model on on the partnership end of the spectrum, let's say, as opposed to to the domination well, yes, and I want to make a point here that's very important. No, not only did somebody do it, (laughs) we humans were really our cultures were much more partnership oriented for millennia, millions of years. First in foraging societies, which were, which the anthropologist Donald Fry, who's a co-author with me, by the way, Mm -hmm. of nurturing our humanity calls the original partnership societies, then in early farming societies. But then there was a shift, which I've called- Would the Minoans be part of that, you think? The Minoans were certainly part of it, and I'm so glad you brought them out because uh, I am not either a technological nor an environmental determinist. I think that what happened didn't have to happen. It did. And for the by the way, the good news is that for the past 300 years, one progressive social and economic movement after another has challenged the same one thing a tradition of domination. You know, whether it was the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule, whether it was the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children, uh, whether it was through the abolitionist and then the civil rights and now the Black Lives Matter movement, the so-called divinely ordained right of a supposedly superior race to rule over inferior ones, all the way to the environmental movement, which challenges our once hallowed conquest of nature, which at this level of technological development could kill us all. So we are really talking about having a unified, integrated frame for all of this. 
and to understand that the battle for our future is not capitalism versus socialism or, or right versus left. You can have terrible regimes on the left. Look at Kim Jong-un. You know, a, a colleague of mine calls the old categories weapons of mass distraction because truly they fragment our consciousness and they leave out the majority of humanity or marginalize women so, and children. So what would, it, what would it look like? Could you give us any advice? How do we, at a time when clearly we are very, very uh, torn apart as a nation in the U.S., I would argue that the globe, frankly, has experienced a tremendous amount of dissonance and, 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 and you can see it spiraling worse out of control. How do we get from here to where we, I know we'd like to be. I know people would rather live in the world of nurturing that you're describing than the world we're living in today. But we can, we, we can, no. but we have to pay attention to something that you don't see through the conventional studies and the conventional categories, which all these social movements challenging traditions of domination have focused much, much more on dismantling what I, what I would call the top of the domination pyramid politics and economics is conventionally defined, and they have failed to put in the energy until now to changing the foundations. And that's why my research has identified four cornerstones that we have to shift from domination to partnership, starting with childhood because of the neuroscience that is very much detailed in nurturing our humanity, but because look, what children experience and observe, neuroscience now tells us actually impacts, shapes how our brains develop and therefore how we think, how we feel, how we act, including how we vote, which is documented in Nurturing Our Humanity. Is your new book, which we've told people they can get at bookshop.org, and I want to remind people, or Amazon if they prefer, or from Chaucer's. Could you go back for just one second? Because you've now brought up young people, being pre-K, a couple times. One candidate for president of the United States recently, Elizabeth Warren, argued that we should have as a high priority everything from prenatal care all the way up through pre-K, and that we should be putting our money into this education of young children rather than focusing all of our attention on what we do in university. And I'm, and I'm assuming I you fully agree with that. I absolutely agree. This does not take away from focusing on university. It provides what is needed for people to be successful in universities. We know from neuroscience that these first three years is when the architecture of our brains develops, and it's very different as documented in Nurturing Our Humanity, to the degree that a culture or subculture is mediated through family, education, religion, et cetera, economics, politics, or to either end of the partnership domination scale. So yes, I absolutely agree with that. And I would suspect that she is acquainted with some of the very sources that are detailed in nurturing our humanity. I'm sure she is. Well, it's not just the university students, future university students, which would be supported by early education, but every single human being growing up in a society, if they have really solid early childhood experiences, they're going to be much more resilient in, no matter where they end up, whether they go to higher education or into some other kind of career, right? <laughs> so. Absolutely. And there are trends in this direction, yeah. not coincidentally. The Northern European nations that are so 
successful economically because they have caring policies, they introduced laws saying that it is against the law to use physical discipline in families. Why is that so important? Because children are dependent for survival on the very people who abuse and use violence against them. And so they learn all kinds of peculiar things, including denial. And they learn scapegoating, hatred, in-group versus out-group thinking. They learn denial of climate change because some leader tells them that, hey, there is no such thing. Or that if there is such a thing, it doesn't matter because you'll be transported into heaven or some such thing. Uh, really, we have some work to do, but the good news is that there are trends. What's been missing is this unified framework. And yes, the focus on the four cornerstones, which are long-term. Childhood, gender, for the reasons I gave. If we're going to change economics, first of all, we have to change what we consider important and valuable and productive work. And by the way, we at the Center for Partnership Studies have developed a new metric, social wealth economic indicators, which we're now you know, condensing and upgrading into an index that shows the economic return from investing in caring for people starting at birth and, and even earlier and caring for our natural environment. We need those indicators, and I invite all of our listeners to find out about them at centerforpartnership.org. And of course, story and language. Why is language so important? Because linguistic psychologists have long told us that the categories provided by our languages, including very much our social categories, channel our thinking. So it's almost impossible to see other alternatives. And for those of us who are educated, quote unquote, we have learned to marginalize women and children so that out of 600 years of so-called modern science, it was only 50 years ago that we even had gender studies, women's studies, men's studies, queer studies, and they're still completely marginalized. And as for what we know from neuroscience, about child development, about human development, it's in our siloed universities, still just occasionally in a psychology or neuroscience course. It should be part of sociology, political science, economics. And that's what this work is about. So I invite all of our listeners to really uh, acquaint yourself with this work and become, become what we need, which are really activists for moving towards partnerism. I, I also think um, we need to have some models who reflect what that looks like in real life. I, I know I'm very impressed with Doug uh, Emoff, who's the uh, husband of Kamala Harris. And the reason I'm impressed with him is because he is the senior partner of one of the biggest law firms in the world, which typically means you had to have a decent sized ego to get there, frankly, and certainly a skill level. And I don't know the man. I certainly don't know his personal life. But from what I can tell, watching them on stage and in public, he seems to me to be very very comfortable, actually happy in the partnership role and celebrating his wife Kamala Harris's rise and wanting to know how he can serve. I, I hope there's more models out there like that. Are there that, that you can point to that we could say, gee, that's somebody who sort of gets what it's going to be like if we do it right? 
Well, yes, there are many such models. I can point to uh, Governor Newsom and his wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom. She opted to be the first partner instead of the first lady, and she is that. I can point to my own life. I have been very, very blessed uh, with my second husband, Dr. David Loy, who, like Kamala Harris's husband, has been a real partner, recognizing that, yes, that what I do is important, just as so many women have recognized because they were confined to that supportive role. I mean, we're not talking about women no longer supporting men. We're talking about men also supporting women. And, and, and I think just to pull full circle, I, I talk about men supporting men. You know, I, when I first started the academy in 1986, I greeted every male that came in the room with a hug. And that was really kind of revolutionary back then. And you could <laughs> see that they didn't want it to happen in the, in the hall. It had to happen behind closed doors. And now, of course, it's quite common. And what I've noticed is as men have gotten more used to the idea of accepting and receiving a hug as a sign of, hey, we're here together. It's, that has softened men. And it, and it has, I think, helped them see themselves in less of a gender-biased way and more in a looking at masculinity and femininity from a non-gender-biased way. This is vital because what this is about is freeing both women and men from the straitjackets of these right. domination gender stereotypes. And you have to have stereotypes like being a real man can't be anything like being a woman, which means men can't be sensitive, they can't be caring, they cannot do caregiving work. But look at all the men who are getting endorphins. I mean, it goes against evolution. They, they get neurochemical rewards of pleasure when they diaper babies, when they feed babies. Of course. Uh, we get neurochemical rewards for caring. And all of this, again, is in nurturing our humanity, which, as I said, draws heavily from neuroscience. But it's up to us, to you, to really spread this knowledge and spread this new language. Because as Einstein said it, and I'll repeat it, if we're stuck in the old categories, we are fragmented. And it's we are not able to build these four foundations of childhood, gender, economics, and yes, a caring economics of partnerism with new metrics like the social wealth economic indicators and the social wealth index, and of course, story and language. We've been told a story about quote, human nature that is totally wrong because what neuroscience is showing is that if anything, we are wired by evolution more for caring and sharing than for dominating. And, and there are studies that show this. But when I say all things being equal, it, this is almost impossible in rigid domination systems, which not only reward dominating, but that make it almost impossible to be caring. You either have to suppress your empathy, which is wired into us, or you have to compartmentalize it so it's only good for the, quote, in-group. I, 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 I can't thank you enough for joining us today because um, with you as our guide, Rian, we could get there. I, I'm reminded that everybody in the world except for a couple of people thought the world was flat until uh, Columbus came back. And it twi the, the paradigm of the flat earth theory went away. 
and we entered into a whole new world. The same thing would be true, of course, with all the great breakthroughs in thinking that have been witnessed over time. And yours, which you've been working on for decades now, and I appreciate that you've been leading us in this conversation. I hope everybody takes the time to go get Nurturing Our Humanity. And frankly, I'd go back and look at the real wealth of nations. And if you missed Chalice and the Blade, grab that one too. And there's three or four you might like when you're in that section of the bookstore. Rianne Eisler, thank you so much for coming to be with us today. It's been a real pleasure. And I know you're an optimist, which is kind of great because uh, you've been working so long to have us all understand the power of what we're capable of. Well, thank you. And we are very much on the same page of the importance of an economics that is no longer guided by uncaring, but by caring. Thank you so much, Ren. All the best. And uh, with that, we'll take another short break and we'll be right back with more Solutions News. Well, hello, universe, and welcome to the Optimist Daily Update. I'm Christy Jansen. And I'm Summers McKay. We're bringing you reader-funded Solutions News every day. We are sharing these solutions in a commute-worthy, walk-worthy, home office-worthy podcast. We share solutions on everything from green energy to impact investing, building community, and even baby animal births. Optimist Daily is not about rose-colored glasses. It is about the reality. And the reality is that we are where we are, and there are solutions and things that can be done to chart a better path. We also have captivating guests like social justice advocate Akila Shirelles and self-identified soil health geek Ethan Steinberg. Agroforestry... Maybe one of the ways to think about it, either bringing the agriculture to the forest or bringing the forest to the agricultural field. And as an added bonus, you get to hear hilarious tales from behind the scenes and can't miss stories. Of course, we think they're hilarious, but you can listen and judge for yourselves. Sorry, Amelia, talking about the cat again. <laughs> Tune into the Optimist Daily Update on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Welcome back, Central Coast. This is Solutions News at KZSB 1290 AM. I'm your host, Ronaldo Brutico, and we just have a few minutes left today. And we have an incredibly special announcement. So I'm thrilled to tell you that our guest next week will be my very dear friend, the uniquely brilliant and globally influential Deepak Chopra. We'll be talking primarily about the New York Times bestseller, Metahuman, his 90th book published last year, as well as providing you a peak preview of his newest book coming up in two weeks called Total Meditation. We'll also learn about his plans to help reduce teen and adult suicides with his new nonprofit platform, NeverAlone.Love, and his lifelong interest in supporting the whole person, the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual integration and well-being of us all. Uh, and, you know, all these years we spoke about the mind-body connection until one day I realized that was also an oxymoron, you know, just like wave particles are the same entity, mass energy are the same entity, space-time are the same entity, body-mind are the same entity. They're just two different ways of experiencing consciousness. So when I realized that and I started to look at all the wisdom traditions, I asked myself the question, how can we shift from provisional identity to absolute identity in any moment. And one of the ways you can do that even is through intellectual understanding. When you ask, who am I? Um, and you go a little deeper into the question, who am I? It immediately becomes obvious that I'm not the body because the body is a changing experience. 
The body is an experience. It's, it's not the source of experience. It is an experience. And it's experienced in the same way as anything else. Sensations, perceptions, and cognition and perception. And in fact, there's no such thing as a body. You have the body of a fertilized ovum, and then a zygote, and then an embryo, and then a baby, and then a toddler, and now this. And one day it will disappear. So if you say, I am my body, then you have to say, which one? Which one? <laughs> yeah. And if you say, I am my mind, then you have to say, which one too? You know, too. right now you and I have a conversation. The only thing that's actually common right now between you and me um, that we can say is a clue to who we are, a clue is the name. That's it. Don't miss next week's show and listen in on our intimate conversation with Deepak. And with that, we're going to end today's show with a quote from a Holocaust survivor himself, Viktor Frankl, who was liberated from a death camp at the end of World War II, who observed, quote, since Auschwitz, we know what man is capable of. And since Hiroshima, we know what is at stake. Thank you, Viktor Frankl. And thank you, Dr. Rianne Eisler, for helping us understand how the folly of domination leads to the brutality of man's inhumanity to man. I'm so glad that we've had a chance to have this discussion today because I do believe Auschwitz told us what we were capable of. And I believe that Dr. Eisler's work can keep us from another Hiroshima or worse. Looking forward to being here with you next week on Solutions News. Solutions News.